Hello and welcome back to The Moments That Made Me. Before we kick off with this week's incredible episode, I just wanted to let you all know that my first book, Manifest, Seven Steps to Living Your Best Life, is available to pre-order now. I am beyond excited and proud and just over the moon and I cannot wait for you guys to get your hands on it. It will be released on the 6th of January 2022 and it will teach you absolutely everything you need to know to manifest literally anything that you want into your life. It is a self-development book, a self-help book, an empowerment book, and of course, a guide to manifesting. So you can pre-order from Amazon or Waterstones or Audible from now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Moments That Made Me with me, your host, Roxy Nafusi. Today, I'm joined by an incredible guest, the wonderful Neil Moody. Neil is one of the most successful British hairstylists of his generation. He is a regular Vogue contributor with over 50 global Vogue covers to his name, as well as having styled a long list of A-list celebrities. He's also the host of his own podcast, In Bed with Neil Moody. And I am so excited to hear his three defining moments that got him to where he is today. Hi, Neil. Hi. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's always weird hearing people talking about you. <laughs> In that it, way. it is. You're like, oh, that's my summary this week. <laughs> yeah, you sort of go, oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> where are you? Are you in London? I'm in London. I'm actually at home, sat around my table, my dining table. Oh, heaven. Me too. Do you know what? I'm actually on the floor next to my sofa. <laughs> so I feel like we're at home. Very, very casual conversation today, which I love. Yes. So let's dive straight in with your first defining moment. Well, one of the, the ones that I put on my list was moving to New York in 1996. That was a big moment for me because I, 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 I was just about to say I'd never lived abroad, but actually I had, but it was a disaster. But that was many years before. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to talk about that. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, moved, I just want to know briefly, what was the disaster? <laughs> well, I moved to Milan when I was 21 years old 
And um, at the time I was still working in a salon. So I just had this dream, the Italian dream in my head that I was going to be driving around on a little sort of motorino with my long curly hair that I had at the time and just living this sort of, I don't know, I think I probably thought I was Audrey Hepburn maybe. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it didn't quite pan out like that, shall we say. Um, six months later, I came back with my tail between my legs, all a bit like, it didn't work. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so actually that was the first time I lived abroad but New York really was the first time I went to live abroad for my career I guess I'd already started working um, on photo shoots and I'd been doing that for about two years so 1994 was my first introduction into the sort of editorial uh, fashion world really and I had been working with my friend Corinne Day the photographer who sadly passed away about 10, 11 years ago, but she was the one that got me started really in the fashion industry. She asked me to work with her and as, you know, as a hairstylist on her shoots. And basically, Corinne was the one that took me to New York for the first time. She was booked to work on a shoot for W magazine. And she said to me, I'd love you to come with me. You know, I want to take you with me to New York. And of course, I was so excited, but I remember actually going there and I think I had this sort of idea in my head of how New York was and I think it was from the TV and I just imagined that every street corner people were going to be there with guns and there's going to be shootouts everywhere you know a little bit like the old sort of um cop shows like Starsky and Hutch and Cagney and Lacey <laughs> and it wasn't quite like that but um so yeah we went for a week and I actually had the most amazing time we did the shoot which was fantastic and we worked with a model that was very big at the time called Bridget Hall and then we uh basically then did an album cover for a new musician that had just started and we then had a few days to hang out before we came back home How old were you when you'd gone to New York I was 28 no sorry 26 26 and what were you, was it kind of like you were going into, did you, had you been before? Like, did you feel like you were going into the American dream or were you a bit more apprehensive? I was a lot more apprehensive, I'll be honest with you. I mean, that trip with Corin that I was just mentioning now, we only went for a week and I was so blown away by it. And we met Corinne's friends who lived there and when we were going out and we were going to like clubs and we were going to exhibitions and I was meeting all these amazing, you know, photographers and artists and everything. And we did some great shopping there. And I just was so like, wow, this is amazing. And actually Corinne and I on the plane on the way home, we both said, shall we move to New York? And we sort of <laughs> came up with this plan to move to New York. Because I remember flying back going, I love it there. It's fantastic. And so as soon as we <laughs> I got feel home, like that's what everyone says when they go on holiday. They're like, oh, I love it here. We should move here. But then you actually did. Yeah. So like, when we came home and we basically started to plan to move to New York. And um, sadly, that was not long after then, Corinne got sick with her brain tumour. And she oh. wasn't allowed to fly for quite a long time. She had her operation. But I remember saying to her, but we were going to move to New York. And she went, Neil, I think you should go anyway. I think it would be really great for you and your career. You know, things have started very well in London, but I think it'd be great for you to go and actually 
do it yourself. I can always come later on when I'm better, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I basically started planning it. And one of Corinne's friends, Rachel, who at the time was a model, um, I was kept in touch with and said to her, look, I want to come and live in New York. And she said, would well, you want to get an apartment together? So basically she organized an apartment for us in the East Village. And yeah, we, she signed all the papers and got, you know, got the apartment ready. And then I panicked and was like, oh, I don't know if I want to go now. Um, you know, <laughs> the reality of it sort of smacked you in the yeah. face a bit. And for three months after signing the lease on this apartment, I didn't actually go at all. Um, and it was quite funny because Rachel kept calling me going, are you actually going to come? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting for a job to happen there. And I got myself an agent at that point. So I joined mm -hmm. a fantastic agency there at the time called Art and Commerce. And my booker, Tim, was incredible. And he was the one that eventually was like, okay, let's get you on a plane and get you over here because we need to get going. And so eventually I did move there, but the actual move was a bit of a shock. I think, you know, the reality of living there on a daily basis mm. rather than being, like you said, when you go on holiday and you're just in a hotel or something, you know, I was suddenly in an apartment and it was my, it had become my life, you know? And I remember also that the first week I was there, Rachel said to me, you know, the, the apartments here that Neil, they don't have washing machines, things like that. We have to go to the laundrette. She goes, I normally take the washing, you leave it with the laundrette and then you pick it up, you know. And I was like, okay, fine. That was a bit of a weird thing for me. But anyway, I remember we <laughs> left the apartment and we came out of the main door and there was a gun siege going on on our street. And of course, in my no. head, I was like, yeah. And I was like, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be when I first came. And that, and everyone tried to convince me it wasn't like that. And I remember the, I remember the cops, as they call them shouted to me get inside there's a gunman on the loose and I just looked at Rachel yeah and I just looked at Rachel and went what the hell have I done moving here she was like get inside just get inside so I just looked at her and I, I must have looked like I'd seen a ghost and she said to me Neil this is quite normal but it doesn't happen every day you know this is it's normal but it's not she said you know the area we're living in if you go a few blocks down, we were in Alphabet City. She was like, it gets a little dodgy and these things can happen. She said, but to be honest with you, it doesn't normally affect you and your daily life. Of course, I remember for the next couple of days thinking, oh, I don't want to go outside. <laughs> but um, I, I did. That I is so funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah of all was, the days, like just as you've moved. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big introduction to New York for me. And I just want to say now, I think New York has changed <laughs> since that happened. Yeah. I mean, we're talking, <laughs> yeah. you know, 1996 this was. So I think, you know, it's a different city now, but at the time it oh, was cool. still on the little, on the dodgy side. But, um, but in a way, it's what made New York a bit exciting, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because And once you moved, how um how quickly did your career start to kind of take off and expand and also how quickly were you making friends? Yeah, well I basically I like I said I'd already been working in London for about 2 years and I'd done some vogues here and I'd done British Vogue and I'd worked on Italian Vogue and then working for magazines like The Face and ID but obviously America, New York, it's a different market. And 
my agent over there, Tim, said to me at the time when I first arrived, he was like, look, Neil, we've taken you on because we believe that you can work here. He said, people love the Brits. The fashion industry loves British people. They find you guys very creative. They tend to want to sort of calm you down a little bit because they get a bit scared if it's too creative. But he was like, we believe, you know, on a commercial level, we can make this work for you here in the US. And I, what I did was I, back, it was before really the internet had would really become a thing within the fashion industry. So I used to have to traipse around the city with my portfolio and go and meet people and meet photographers. And it was kind of great in one respect because I got to know the city better. Now they do everything online. You know, they just send somebody's portfolio on the internet and say, have a look. And, you know, you don't actually have to go anywhere. But back then we used to have to literally walk the streets with your portfolio um which is what models used to do makeup parts everybody new photographers would yeah. do the same but yeah i remember sort of going to all these buildings and meeting all these people and i went to american vogue which was quite daunting but i was lucky i'd already been introduced through corin to camilla nickerson who's one of the fashion big fashion editors up at american vogue and so i went to see her again but it felt very different because this time i was there on an appointment to sell myself you know um, as opposed to meeting <laughs> one of corin's friends and it was quite daunting but i remember my first shoot um, arriving on the shoot in New York, it was on a location and it was with a photographer who had been trying to work with me for quite a while. But because I was in London, I was never available for him in New York. Mm. But now I was there, he booked me straight away. His name was Carter Smith. And I did this shoot with him. And I remember it being such a long day. We started at like eight in the morning. And when I arrived, they were like, by the way, we're going to be doing some pictures at night. So it's going to be a night shoot as well. And we finished at about one, two o'clock in the morning. And but I remember the whole production of it was so much bigger than I'd ever experienced in London. You know, they had the big Winnebago's, the, the catering. There was somebody doing nails and manicures, which didn't exist in London at the time in terms of on photo shoots. Now it's the norm, but it was back then it wasn't really a thing here in Britain. And so I remember just being like, oh, my God, this is like a completely different world, you know, and everything was sorted out they'd had cars for you to get you here there and everywhere and there was somebody shipping you about all over the place so you kind of just could get on with your job and I remember just thinking wow this is like another world you know um mm. very it felt very professional I guess is for want of a better word and that's not me dissing how it was here in London because I think it was professional here, but in a different way, you know, we, we were a lot more, it was more about creativity than making money here in the UK, whereas there it was like, we're here to make money. This is, you know, it's all about the dollar kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. Amazing. And actually that took a while to adjust to that because I realized over there it was a serious business, you know, and I did eventually get to work for American Vogue with Carter, funny enough, he was a photographer and he put me forward. And I remember working with Grace Coddington and it was the first time I'd ever worked with her. And she called me at home it was before mobile phones um, a couple of days before. And she was like, Neil, I just want to let you know, I'm very excited to work with you, but I just want to let you know, this is American Vogue that you're working for. And I was a bit like, okay, what does she mean? And I just said, well, I have worked for lots of other Vogues, Grace, you know, I've done British. And she said, no, but 
I just want to let you know, this is American Vogue. It's a little different. And I was like, What did she mean by that? Well, do you know what was funny was she sort of just said to me, listen, what you've done in London and all the work that you've done there is very creative. And it's, it was obviously the whole grunge era as well. And she was like, you're going to need to polish it up a little bit for the American market. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fine, I can do that. But I remember being then going to work thinking, oh, my God, I'm absolutely petrified. Is she going to hate what I do? And I actually, um, I remember our model was Maggie Riser, a lovely model who was huge in the 90s. And I did like this hair up on her. And after the first day, Grace came up to me and she said, Neil, I just want to let you know, you're actually quite good, aren't you? (laughs) Brilliant. And I just looked at her and I said, thank you. I I guess that's a compliment. She went, yes, it is. She said, you've done a great job. Well done. But it was the way she said, you're actually quite good. Almost like she was expecting me to be crap. Do you know what I mean? 100%. But I think like she begrudgingly complimented you. Yeah, because I think she was expecting to have to go, you know what, Neil, the hair is too grungy, it's too, you know what I mean? It's not American Vogue enough. But I cleaned up my act and cleaned up the hair that I did and just made it like a chic updo and she loved it. So, yeah, that, so it was quite a big introduction for me into another world, really, you know. Absolutely. Um, working for American Vogue versus the others. I mean, it's such an incredible achievement and I can't even imagine how that must have felt seeing it as well on the stands for the first time. Oh God, when it came out, I mean, I was like a kid in a toy shop. I was so excited um, you oh, know, to yeah. be able to see it and also tell people, look, I've worked for American Vogue and here is the shoot. You know, this is so exciting for me. And you know, like I say, it wasn't the most creative shoot I'd ever worked on in terms of, you know, being everybody just going full on and doing their thing. But it was just there's something about American Vogue that's on this pedestal over the others that you feel like when you've done that, you've sort of ticked a massive box of like, yes, I've done American Vogue now and that's great. And, you know, and then I went on to shoot a lot for W Magazine. I did some more shoots for American Vogue. I never did tons for American Vogue because I think they always felt that maybe my work wasn't quite sort of soft enough for them. I don't know. But, you know, it was fine. I did it a few times and I was happy with that. You know, I was like, it's one thing on my roster that I can say that I've always done. So Exactly. Exactly. So, Neil, what was then your second defining moment? Well, I've written down that my second defining moment was doing my podcast interview for Jamie Day's Man Talk podcast, which Mm. is whizzing through to 2019. So we're only talking a couple of years ago. But this Mm. podcast was quite a prolific thing for me because it was where I publicly discussed for the first time about my mental health struggles and issues that I Mm. had been living with for a long time. In fact, probably from about the age of 14, you know, by this point, I was like 50, 51 years old and I had never really spoken out about it before. I kept it to myself, my close friends and close family. And Mm. and actually, like I say, when I was about 14, I started to have anxiety attacks, but didn't really understand what they were. And I just thought I was having a bit of a weird teenage turn. But when I look Mm. back now, I realise what it was, that it was anxiety. And it sort of 
it kept popping its head up every now and again, like it happened about a year after I moved to London. And I think that was just the stress of moving to London after a year of being here. You know, I broke up with my partner who I moved to London with and it was it just felt really daunting. And so I started having the anxiety attacks then. And that was when I started to understand a little bit more about what they were. But I think I kind of ignored it then. And it wasn't until I hit about 30 was when they really mm. came on full pelt. And I was actually living in New York at the time. And I think what had happened was, was in New York, my... I was working so much and was so busy and but to the point where I was a bit like you know I don't I felt like I needed to find a pause button or a stop button but I was almost too mm. scared to say I'm going to take some time off guys because I'm absolutely exhausted um mm. and it was that thing as well you know when you're on a roll with work you kind of think I need to go with it this is amazing and everyone was like Neil you're doing so well you're doing all these jobs and all these shoots and it's incredible but underneath it all, I felt like I was falling apart. And eventually, like I say, when I hit, I think it just before my 30th birthday, these anxiety attacks suddenly came on like full whack, but to the point where they took over my life completely. Oh yeah, I started to have them at work. I was having them in the street in the middle of the day. But oh. yeah. And then the next thing I knew was I couldn't even leave my flat. I became like agoraphobic because I was in this constant state of anxiety. And it was absolutely awful. And I remember just thinking, God, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. But um, mm. eventually after four days of not sleeping and not being able to go out the door, two of my very close friends, and I'm going to name them because I always feel that I want to name them is Earl Sims and Debbie Stone. And they came and got me and took me to see a doctor. And because mm. they were like, Neil, you can't carry on like this. And luckily for me, my doctor sent me to see a psychiatrist. This was a private doctor, by the way. He took me to see a psychiatrist uh, or sent me to see a psychiatrist. And he did this big analysis of me. And he basically said to me, look, you're suffering from mild depression and mm. very, very severe anxiety. And mm. basically your body is telling you it cannot cope with what you're putting it through anymore and you need to stop and you need to make some changes and you're going to need some help doing it because you've gone past the point of being able to sort it out, you know, on your own. And mm. so, yeah, I, they put me on to medication Mm. to help relieve the depression and then I also went to have cognitive therapy I had acupuncture and I also saw a therapist who specialized in anxiety and all of those things together was what actually helped me get better but it was a long process and like I say doing the podcast man talk Jamie's podcast it's he interviews men from all different walks of life about their experiences with anxiety and depression and it's about raising awareness really and like I said I'd always kept it to myself before but doing this podcast it was the first time I'd spoken publicly about it and what was amazing was that I had a really great response to it I was very nervous the day before it was about to be released I called Jamie and said, I think I might have changed my mind. I don't know if I want it to go out. And he said, well, look, it's up to you. If you don't want it to release, I, you know, I can stop it. Um, mm. But he said to me, Neil, I think your story is going to help so many people. And, mm. you know, and I think 
you have to understand why you've done it in the first place, why everyone else has done it. He said, I'm not going to force you to release it, but I just think it will benefit a lot more people than you ever imagine. And so I agreed. And actually it did. I mean, I had so many people contact me, especially hairdressers um, mm. saying to me, oh my God, I listened to your podcast. It was amazing. I've been going through a similar thing and I didn't really understand, you know, people asking me my advice. I mean, of course I was very kind of like, listen guys, I'm not an expert and mm. I can't advise you on how to recover because everybody's journey is different. But I said, you know, at the same time, I can definitely point you in the right direction of what I think you should do. And, you know, and it was interesting because I had quite a lot of conversations with people at the point, you know, I still take a very low dose of medication now and I have done for over 20 years which some people don't agree with and I've had conversations about that with people but you know one of the things with my psychiatrist like he's I've said to him before in the past I hate taking these tablets and he said but Neil they put you they stabilize you he said and if I was giving you something for your heart or your liver and said, look, you've got a bit of an issue, take this and this will sort it out and you take it regularly. What would you do? And I said, well, I take it. So, well, why not do it with this? And yeah, it was an interesting conversation. And I under, I do understand why people don't think it's a good idea. I think there's a lot of stigma attached, not only around mental health, but also around medication. But, you know, I've heard mm. people say to me, oh, you know, I don't like the medication thing, but I microdose on mushrooms or on microdose on LSD or and I'm like well what's the difference really because yeah you know at, at the end of the day you're still putting something into your body that slightly chemically adjusts it or adjusts the yeah. brain and so you know I take a very low dose compared to what I was on when I was really ill and for me it works and if that's what works for me and that's what works for you then great why should we compare one against the other or say one's better but, you know, a lot of people go, oh, well, the health, the health aspect and all that kind of thing. I'm like, yeah, but you don't know the long-term effects of taking microdosing on LSD or microdosing on mushrooms, mm. you know. Uh, yeah, no one exactly. knows the long-term effects of that. So for me, I'm like, listen, do what works. I do what works for me. I completely agree. But it's created a lot of interesting, you know, conversations for me since I did it, which was amazing. And also I think... Um, it's allowed me to then have other conversations on my own personal podcast with people that I maybe never would have had conversations with before because I do talk mm. to people on mine about mental health as well. So it's been a it was a great catalyst to get the conversation broadened and widened. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing both on that podcast and on here. It's really interesting, actually, because if I imagine you kind of... In since moving to New York or even before until that point and your career really taking off. And I, I do totally get that when you have that momentum and things are going well and there is so much fear around saying no, around stopping and around, and, and you just don't prioritize your well-being at all. No. And I think so many people do experience that in whatever industry. But I can also imagine that as a hairstylist and you're going on a lot of shoots, it is also so many early starts, long hours, um, you know, snack food. You're not even having like proper sit down meals because you're always on set. And it must just be 
absolutely exhausting. And alongside that, the pressure of always having to be on in terms of your personality and chatty. And, you know, it's a lot for someone to, whilst trying to build your own career. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it it really is. And, you know, like you say, the hours are long, can be very long. And I think, you know, there's an element of from the outside, my industry seems people will say oh you're so lucky you have you know it's so glamorous and I would say we we're not part of the glamorous side of it it's mm. we're the people that create you know what people see as an end result but all of that is hard work it takes you know a long time to produce an image um, set of pictures for whether it's for an editorial or whether it's for an advertising campaign you know sometimes it can take days but yeah mm. the, we start very early in the morning Um, And obviously now with COVID, we have a lot more things to contend with. We have to work all the time with masks on. We have, I mean, I've been, I've had so many COVID tests. I have to have a test every time I go to work, you know, and we're not allowed to enter a studio without a a negative COVID test. And then while we're there, we're expected to wear masks the whole day, Um, which, like I say, is fine because it is what it is. But there's so many extra elements now going on. And obviously, since COVID as well, there's things about budgets where people have a bit less money. So we're having to do more within one day because they can't afford to do it over two days, et cetera, et cetera. And so the hours have become longer. And yeah, I mean, it it really plays on you. Plus as well, when I was living in New York, I was doing so much traveling because, you know, in New York in the winter, the winters are brutal. So normally around that time, you're shooting spring, summer. So I would have to fly somewhere, either somewhere within America or the Caribbean or Mexico, you know, where the weather was better. So I was on a plane, off a plane, on a plane, off a plane. And there's a journey from LA to New York, which they call the red eye. So it's the overnight flight from LA and you land in New York in the morning at like six, seven o'clock. The amount of times I did that flight and then went straight to work off the plane in New York. And, you know, that people are like, well, you slept on the plane. It's a five hour journey. (laughs) So No, and it's not the same sleep. It doesn't count. It doesn't count, you know, and it's not like you're lay on a gorgeous bed with loads of pillows and you know, you're sort of three quarters upright on a plane, you know. And by the time you've actually taken off and got settled, you probably had about four hours sleep. Um, but you know, yeah. the amount of times I would work in the day in LA and then take the flight that night, sleep as long as I could on the plane, and then go to work off the you know, off the red eye. And I did that so many times. And I just think, you know, in the end, your body just tells you when it's had enough, you know, when you're, yeah. it just says you're putting it through too much. And I would sometimes do that in London. I'd fly from New York, arrive in London in the morning, go and do a shoot, and then fly straight back to New York on the end of the day, you know, whatever the last day was. So I was doing it transatlantic as well, which then you've got an even bigger time difference. And all these elements really, you know, started to play mm. and, I think what people, a lot of people don't realise as well for me is that when I was young, I was actually very shy and quite quiet. People that know me be like, yeah, right. But I, I was very shy and quiet. And it was actually, yeah. funny enough, moving to New York is what really brought me out of my shell as a person. Because I've always said New York, living in New York is like running with a big herd of elephants. And if you're not running with them, they will trample all over you and leave you behind. And so you end up 
learning to become one of those herd of elephants, you know, so that you can keep up with the pace, keep up with the level of pressure, keep up with the, um, you know, the sort of um, excitement and of, of the whole day and how people are and the energy of people. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of a very interesting process. And I lived there for five years. So, you know, when I came back, a couple of my friends said to me, oh, my God, you're like the all-starring Neil show since you've come back from New York. And I sort of had to calm it down a little bit because I realized I was on this New York pace, you know, and yeah. an energy. And actually, even though London has a pace, it's slower than it is there. Um, and yeah. it was really nice. It was really nice when I came back to sort of go back to that pace of London and the pace of Europe, especially. And it's one of the reasons why I moved back, because, like I say, my anxiety when I hit 30 was really when I was smack bang in the middle of my career exploding in New York and I had I ended up I was off work for four months in total and then oh wow yeah and eventually went back to work but I was in London and I actually wouldn't travel I refused to get on a plane or on a train to Paris for about another three months and then eventually I was like you know what I have to pick up my life again and so I mm. did I finally fly back to New York but I think, again, that was almost like the catalyst for me to say, I think I want to go back to Europe. But it took me about two years to figure that out and eventually move back. Um, yeah. You know, because I was like, I don't just want to leave New York behind. Of course. And you'd done, you'd worked so hard to create a life for yourself there. And, yeah. you know, it's not easy to just get up and go. Yeah. And friends and, you know, and uh, my work life had, was there. I, You know, I'd shifted everything from, the UK to New York really and of course my agents were like we need you back you know loads of people are trying to get you and but <laughs> I I I learned from the whole process of I guess what I, my breakdown really was sort of learning to pace things better and say no when I didn't want to work yeah. rather than saying yes you know and just kind of being more in control of it than feeling like it was out of control and other yeah. people were controlling it you know yeah, and, and I mean exactly. that. I mean that in a positive way because the because our agents are amazing. But you know, for them, they're just kind of their job is to get you work. That's what they're there for. You know, we're self-employed. Of course, they're, they're running a business, and so the whole process is is they're a business, you're a business. But you have to remember that you're also in control of your business, and sometimes you have to pace it at your pace, not at somebody else's pace. That because they're not aware of how you're feeling unless you tell them. You exactly. Know? 100%. Well, thank you so much for sharing that moment and for talking so openly, especially about medication, because I think you're right. There there can still be a stigma attached to it, but I'm very much mm. of the same belief as you, which is that whatever works for you is great. And, mm. you know, there is absolutely, I have many friends who are on medication and it works brilliantly for them. And many friends who don't feel they need it and have used other measures, you know, or, mm -hmm. or, or alternative therapies. And that's worked great for them. So, yeah, amazing, mm. I think, to, to talk about and, and highlight. Hello and welcome to A to Z of Men, a brand new podcast that helps explain, well, men. Each week, myself, Chris Brooks. And me, Scott Robinson. We take on a different letter of the alphabet. What? In order? 
Yeah, in order. We will find a word that best describes men that starts with that letter. So it's basically like a guide. Like a guide, yeah, that's correct. Well, this will really help me explain myself to the wife. We tackle topics such as mental health, stereotypes, and stupid things us men do. Don't forget sex. Oh, and sex. Plus, you can send in your words, stories, and, well, anything to A2Z, it's the number two, A2Z of men at gmail.com, or follow us on Instagram and TikTok at A2Z of men. So join us each Wednesday as we create the A to Z of men. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What was your third defining moment? So my third defining moment, I have listed of leaving my company, Wyndham and Moody, in 2018. And that was huge for me because I think as my career went on when I was younger, I was an ambassador for various brands, uh, worldwide ambassador, sort of, you know, helping them promote the products, et cetera, et cetera. And... When I was given the opportunity to create a brand that was going to be mine and I would have a part of it and have a part of the process of creating the brand, that really excited me because I felt like it was another level in my career, you know, taking it to another stage. And I, at the time, I was um, an ambassador for Bumble and Bumble, which I had been for six years. And so I decided to quit that and team up with my then business partner, Paul Windle. And we started off, we first created an electrical line called WAM, W-A-M, which was our initials, Windle and Moody. And then we sort of launched those. The reason why we started with that was because I originally approached Paul because he had a straightening iron, and which was competing against GHD straightening irons because they just appeared on the market. And... I said to Paul, I think you should expand the brand, you know, and he was like, oh, you know, I don't have enough time, blah, 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 because he had the salon. And I said to him, well, look, I'll help you because I think there aren't enough great tools in the UK for hairdressers. You know, I feel like I get something from Japan, something from France. I get, you know, a straightening iron here from the UK, but 
it'd be really nice to go to one place where everything exists and it's and you trust everything and believe it all works and so he agreed and we started working on this and yeah it was kind of it was great it went really well what was great we got a lot of hairdressers behind us it was very hard to compete with DHD with the straightening irons but I came up with this idea for a revolving curling iron and we developed that and it ended up being our most successful product in the range and I think because it was quite a new thing at the time and mm. You know, it was hairdressers were loving it. So they were talking about it. They were promoting it. And off the back of that, Paul then said to me, Neil, how do you feel about maybe developing a product line with me and coming in on the salon? And I said, well, you know, listen, I, it does it does interest me. I said, but the bottom line is, is that I don't really want to work in a salon. So if that's what you're thinking, then I don't really want to do that. I'm happy to put my name to it and be involved in it creatively, but I just don't feel like I want to stand behind a chair again. So he agreed that that was okay. And so I left Bumble and Bumble. Paul was the distributor of Bumble and Bumble products in the UK and they wanted to take it back in house. So it was, the timing was quite good. We both sort of left our various roles at Bumble and Bumble to start Windler Moody really so we started working on the product line we did a big renovation in the salon a big refit and what was Windle Salon became Windler Moody and so it sort of started it was like the birth really Wham was the Wham was the sort of little baby and then the salon and the products became the sort of what I call the teenage child <laughs> you know where they were starting to explore what they were and sort of develop and so yeah, we but we spent four years working on the product line, which was amazing because, you know, we felt like when we released it, it was a really great set of products to put out there that we believed in. Because I did say to Paul right from the onset, I don't want to do a product line that we just slapped our name on it and it's not bespoke. It's not that great because I'm not very good at lying and pretending that something's good when it isn't. Um, I never have been. So I want to be able to stand there with this product in my hand and go, this is great because I believe it. And also we created yeah. it and he felt the same. So it was great. So, you know, we, we did that. We eventually launched the products and the, the press loved it. People loved it. We had a really great response and yeah. And so it sort of went on from there, but what happened was it was funny because leaving Windler Moody was such a big thing for me after 12 years of working alongside Paul, Mm. and working on this brand together I think I could probably honestly say for the last two years that we did it I started to feel like Paul and I were going off in di different directions in terms of where we wanted the brand to go how we saw it growing how we felt it needed to grow and how we were going to grow it we suddenly had gone off this sort of parallel journey and he'd gone off to the left and I was going off to the right. It was a bit of a realisation for me that was like, you know what, Neil, I don't think this is working anymore. And I'd also mm. just turned 50 at the time. I'd hit my 50th birthday in 2018. And again, I think that was another defining moment for me where I was a bit like, I'm 50, closer to the end of my life than the beginning of it. <laughs> you know, who knows how long I'll live for. But I was suddenly like, I don't want to carry on doing something that's making me unhappy. And, yeah. and so I sat there and I went to see a lawyer 
And I sort of said, listen, this is what's happening. This is where I'm at. I'm very stuck about how to move forward with this, but I feel like we're not on the same journey anymore, you know, as, as business partners. And it was great. They sat me down and they asked me three questions to answer. And the answer to all of them was no. And I didn't have any hesitation in terms of answering them. You know, and I remember one of the questions was, are you happy right now with how, where, the, with the brand and where it's at? And I just said, no. And then they were like, you know, mm. do you think, do you think you can continue working with this person? And I just said, no, I don't. And I can't remember what the third question was, but it was, they were three questions. Cause I was, I was so emotional when I got there, you know, and I was very kind of, like, <laughs> and the thing is, and, and this is happening and that's happening, you know, and they were like, Neil, mm. just calm down. We need you to just answer three simple questions. And they were amazing because I answered them and they said, so you've answered everything really, Neil. How do you feel now you've answered those questions? And I just said, you've made me realize I need to leave. And he said, and they were like, well, there you go. We haven't told you what to do. You've figured it out for yourself. Um, mm. And so that was, again, like a massive turning point for me of kind of going, and, and I think in a way it tapped into my sort of mental health a little bit of how I was starting to feel anxious. I was starting to get, you know, these moments of anxiety and unhappiness. And I remember thinking, I don't want to go back down where I was before. I worked so hard to come out of that. Um, mm. and, and this was starting to bring it up to the forefront. I've always said about anxiety, it's not something you can turn off. It's a bit like a dimmer switch yeah. that goes up that goes up and down, but you're actually exactly. not in control of the switch either. You know what I mean? The switch, <laughs> yeah, your brain yeah. is controlling the switch, but you can, can then control your brain and make decisions to stop it from happening. So mm -hmm. it was, it was that moment where I just went, yeah, you know what, this is what I need to do. And so, yeah, I then resigned in January, 2018. And cause I just decided I want to start the new year afresh, you know, yeah. hit, start the new year completely free of things that are making me unhappy and mm. you know see where my life takes me and you know I remember when the announcement was made it was a, it was made that I wanted to pursue other things in my career um but it was a bit more than that to be honest <laughs> mm. oh my gosh I mean I think it's so I can't even Imagine because your business is, it's like your child. You live yeah. and breathe it. It's like you say, they're having those products and your name on it and, and all the sort of glory that can come with that is, is amazing. And you sort of celebrate that when it's happening. But then when you're looking at it and kind of a few years down the line, kind of going, I just don't know what's happening. I don't know where we're going. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it. I don't think we should be doing this. I should be doing that. But this person is kind of going, that's what we're doing. And you, you have to like it or lump it. I was like, that's not who I am. You know, I work collaboratively. Yeah. I mean, that's what I do on photo shoots. You know, you go and you work as a team. You don't work as a solo person with other people just telling you what to do. You, you all sit down and go, right, we're, you're going to be doing this, you're going to be doing that. What do you think about the hair? What should we do? And it becomes a collaborative thing. And I think that's somebody that I am. I like to work in a team. I like to be a team player. But then when you're in a business with somebody that, really isn't then eventually you know problems start happening and um and you have to make the decision to leave which is what I did and and you know what I think 
and a lot of people said to me, my God, Neil, what are you doing? You're mad. And I'm like, no, seriously, if I stay, I will become mad. <laughs> uh, because... 100%. 100%. And so where are you at now? Well, it's three, just over three and a half years that I left Windler Moody. Um, seems, it's weird. One minute seems like five minutes ago. Another time it feels like it's ages ago. I am mm. now currently, I became um, an ambassador for a brand called Biolage, which is um, owned by L'Oreal and is part of the Matrix family, which, so I'm an ambassador for them for UK and Ireland. And I'm also an ambassador for L'Oreal's electrical tool, SteamPod. So I'm helping them promote that because it's a really, again, it's a really great tool. And having developed yes, I my own. I love that SteamPod. Yeah, having developed my own products in the past. Oh, God, I mean, it's such a great thing. And I remember going to meet them and saying to them, you know, because they were like, Neil, you know, we know you have a passion for electrical tools, but we'd like to show you the steam pod. And I just said to them, listen, guys, if I don't think this is good, I'm probably not going to get involved. Because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not very good at, you know, bullshitting my way through these kind of things and pretending to people that they're great. But when they demoed it to me, I was like, this is actually really good. And so mm. I was super happy to get involved. So, yeah, I'm working with them and carry on doing my photo shoots. Obviously, my podcast started three years ago. I'm about to launch series three um, in the next couple of weeks because I, had, I took a bit of a break because of COVID. And, and then also I am putting this out there. I'm, <laughs> I'm planning to open a salon next year. Oh, congratulations. Thank Incredible. You. I can't wait to yeah. be there. <laughs> I'll be yes, first you must in the come. door. You must come. Please, Please come. Yeah. So um, that's in the pipeline Neil, at the moment. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest and for sharing your three moments with me. Before oh, you go, I you. have a couple of quick fire questions. Mm -hmm. So the first one is your most memorable book. Most memorable book? Mm. Um, the Beach. Your favorite quote? Oh, God. I have one that's really amazing. That I was, and I've forgotten it. So amazing I've forgotten it. Um, the best way to predict the future is to create it. <gasps> oh, I love that. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Like a little manifesting quote. <laughs> I might use that. It's an old quote from Abraham Lincoln. Oh, brilliant. I'm going to write that down. That's so good. Your most influential mentor? Corinne Day, the photographer. A moment where you felt most proud? I think when the products were launched, Windsor Moody products launched, I was very proud of that. Uh, a song that cheers you up. Oh, a song that cheers me up. I have a couple. Can I name a couple? Of course. Because <laughs> one's current and one's old. The current <laughs> one, I say current, it's over a year old now, is Physical by Dua Lipa. She's great for feel-good songs, isn't she? Yeah, because that got me through lockdown. I used to go for a walk every morning and that was the song I play first thing, first Aww. song I play. And I remember oh, marching I around King's Cross on my own near where I live, with <laughs> <laughs> around, um, just with physical playing. Sometimes I had to just have that song on repeat because it was like the energy of it was amazing. And my mm. other feel good song, which funny enough crosses over into another two songs actually. So Gimme, Gimme, Gimme by ABBA. Mm. But I also love 
when Madonna readed it or used it for hung up as she used the riff from Gimme Gimme Gimme. Your top tip for dealing with stress. My top tip for dealing with stress. Take a step back just from the situation. If you're in the situation and it's making you stress, just take a step back for a minute. Even just walk away from it if you can. And it, I think for me, it's about breathing. You have to, I find with stress and anxiety, your breathing instantly becomes shorter. And yeah. I think you have to control the breathing. If you can control your breathing, you are more likely to be able to control your mind and your brain and stop it from running away with itself and going crazy. Um, so, yeah, yeah. One thing you'd like to achieve in the next year? It's funny because I don't, I, I never think about material things or anything like that. I always think happiness is best achievement you can have. I love that. And the last question is, who is the first person you call to share good news? Oh, normally my boyfriend, Carmela. Oh, I love that. Now, yeah. Neil, thank you so, so much for coming on the show and for sharing your moment and for being so open and honest. And I know you will help so many people in doing so. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that's what the sharing is about, really. You know, it's 100%. about... 100%. Um, sharing it. Like I say, I never do it to give myself a pat on the back. I do it to try and help other people as well because people help me. And, you know, if you can help other people, then that's great. You know, um, of really, I think more than anything else. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you for Thank being you. a guest. Thank, Thank you for you having God. me. I've, I've loved talking to you. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.